radio for the Agile community. www.agile.fm Welcome to another episode of Agile FM. Today I have a creator, a pioneer of mob programming with me. That is Woody Zuhl and uh, he is... Um, he can be reached at Woody and then Z like Zebra U-I-L-L on Twitter. Many of you guys already follow him. He is the creator and uh, behind Mob Programming and that is uh, also on mobprogramming.org. Welcome to the podcast, Woody. Thank you, Joe. Awesome. Thanks for uh, carving out some time and uh, we'll talk about a topic that is... Uh, Maybe, uh, I mean, we're using it quite a bit in the Agile world, but there might be some listeners on Agile FM that are confronted with uh, mob programming very, very first time, maybe by listening to this. So uh, mob itself, the, the word, if you uh, look up the definition, it's not very a positive one. Uh, it, says something <laughs> about, it says something about disorderly, uh, trouble, uh, large crowds come to mind. Um, why did you come up with that? term how, how did this all come up like historically um, mob programming well um, originally before we ever started mob programming I was doing code dojos at um, at small conferences and code camps and user groups just because uh, it's fun I enjoy you know that this sort of an interactive uh, way of of enjoying being with other programmers. So mm -hmm. I enjoy enjoying things. There we go. So, uh, But what I found was uh, if we did this in a way that was just two people programming like a pair and everyone else watching, it wasn't a very interactive thing. So we tried different uh, ways of doing this, but the one that I, that I had stumbled upon uh, came to me through uh, a friend of mine, Llewellyn Falco, uh, that he had just learned about was a coding dojo where you actually have a group of five or six people. So when I would do this as a uh, as an exercise at a user group, I would say it's going to be like pair programming, but with a lot more people. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like mobs. We're going to have a mob <laughs> of people programming. So it was just meant as a joke. Mm -hmm. And I would always follow it up with, so to keep it from becoming an unruly mob, we need to have a few simple protocol uh you know, a few protocols to follow. Mm -hmm. And so it was just a joke name. I think it was first used maybe 15 years ago. There was an article written uh, that got into the Extreme Programming Conference 2001 or two, mm -hmm. where they talked about a thing they called mob programming. And I'm sure that's where I first saw it. So it was only meant as a joke. Mm -hmm. But uh, as my team started doing it, we started calling ourselves the mob programming team. And that caught on. And other people like, it's just a humorous name. Right. If our team had called itself, you know, like the, uh, the go-getters or, you know, the the scrumsters or whatever people call their teams, mm -hmm. then that, that might end up being what we're doing. It was right. just a combination of things. So I would say, yeah, it's a little negative in some societies. Mm -hmm. It's considered, uh, like in, in Sweden, they think of mobbing as being a form of bullying, mm -hmm. uh, where a number of people pick on somebody. So, yeah, it can have a negative connotation. Right. But if we take it in the light that it was given, it was really just meant as – as a fun name for our team, it became a fun name for the way we were working. Uh, yeah. So there it is. Right. There it is. And I think with so many things in life, once once more and more people are using the word, at some point you don't really look at the word anymore and the, the meaning because map, mob programming uh, has now a definition, right? And people have a picture, a mental picture of what it means. 
and maybe maybe we don't think so much about the mob itself anymore. But let's go down to the uh, logistics here around this. How big is a mob? How big could a mob be? I mean, you just mentioned a pair, uh -huh. a, a pair sitting in front of a computer. Um, so the computer is somewhat the size of the computer, the keyboards and so forth is pretty much very limiting, right? So assuming we're working on one, uh, how big could these mobs be? Well, typically, in our use of it, uh, our original team was generally six or seven people, sometimes four or five, mm -hmm. but usually five, six, seven people. But uh, I don't think the size is an important aspect of this. Matter of fact, there's two questions I always get when I speak about mob programming. And one of them is, what's a good size? And another one is, how can this possibly be productive with five people sitting and crowding around one computer? Mm -hmm. So first of all, if you use really large monitors, um, and we used to re originally use projectors, mm -hmm. then you know any number of people you can put in a movie theater uh, could be considered uh, a mob. So it's not, it hasn't much to do with the physical setup because you could set up for any number. Mm -hmm. uh, What's going to be important, I think, is, is two things. Whether the people that are there are engaged and contributing or learning something. And another factor is, do we have all the knowledge and skills we need to get this work done in this room at this moment? Mm -hmm. So if that could be fulfilled with just a pair, that, that uh, we have all the knowledge and skills we need, then we don't need to have anything more than two people mm -hmm. or even just one person, which is rare nowadays. Most of the time, software development requires uh, a great deal more than one or two people uh, for almost any aspect of it. Mm -hmm. So uh, if we're going to do everything, and, and there's many ways to set up to do this, but if we're going to do everything uh, about or that's needed to create some small part of this software we're working on, then let's get all those people together. Mm -hmm. And if it's three people, if it's four people, if it's five people, however many is the right number. We won't know necessarily uh, ahead of time. We can't just say a mob programming team should be you know, seven people or nine people. Mm -hmm. Th that wouldn't make a lot of sense to me. Mm -hmm. What makes sense is are we finding we are able to answer our own questions? All right. So, so if I mm – -hmm. go ahead. Yeah, I know you go ahead. Yeah. Well, I just say, if I come up to somebody and go, oh, we're going to need a new query for this, and somebody else on the team doesn't know how to make the query that we would need, then we're probably missing. We're missing that knowledge, and that might, means we might be missing a team member. Mm -hmm. Maybe there's somebody that should be on this team that can bring that knowledge with them. Mm -hmm. So that's a way. So these are two heuristics that we use. Mm -hmm. One is if we don't, if we can't answer our own questions – we either, we either need to get the knowledge or add a person to the team who has that knowledge. The other heuristic is if I'm sitting with a team and I feel that I'm contributing or I'm learning, then I probably should stay with this team. But if I'm not contributing and I'm not learning, then maybe I'm not needed at this team and I could be better uh, – you know, I could spend my time more productively somewhere else. Mm -hmm. I think you just answered my, my follow-up question, but I'm going to state it anyways um, just to see if there's anything else you wanted to add. To this, but um, how important is like self-organization and technical excellence uh, of the people on the mob? Assuming you guys are doing uh, software development or IT work. Yeah, so mob programming is about software development, but that doesn't mean we can't work as a team doing other things. So I'd like to just cover that real quickly. Mm -hmm. People often ask me. Uh, can mob programming be used for other things? Mm -hmm. And I would say, well, in general. Uh, much of what's being done in the workplace is being done as teams. 
So sure, it can be used for all sorts of things. I do know specifically of people who've been putting marketing materials together as a team. They gather all the skills they need, a copywriter, an artist, someone who's an expert at this particular uh, program that we're putting together, and so on. Uh, I've also seen people doing other things like testing as a team. Now, I like to see testing done on a mob programming team, Mm -hmm. but there's no reason that you can't use the same idea to do specific things. So if you had a you know, a silo of testing in your company, there's no reason that they couldn't work as a team uh, rather than just be a team in name only, which is what often happens. Mm-hmm. And that would be for database work or anything else. But let's bring it back to what you, you were asking. If you could rephrase your question. Um, Self-organization uh, within the mob, right? So like that's, okay. a, that's a hot topic for like leadership, agile in general, as well as like the technical excellence of the team members. Could you do a mob with... Uh, maybe that's connected with self-organization with uh, little skills uh, on the mob to achieve something and there's a lot of learning let's say on a mob right that's a real good point mm-hmm. so first of all what most of the time when we're when we're working in a company we are working with whoever is there you know so as an individual if I get hired at a company mm-hmm. uh, I'm usually not going to be given the uh, I wouldn't be given the ability to hire the right people or fire people or whatever so what I usually feel is that we're going to work with whatever we have, and we're going to find out how to best work together. Mob programming is simply uh, an outgrowth of the idea of with this group of people that we have right here, mm-hmm. how can we best get our work done? And I believe that working together is really important whether or not we do mob programming. We have to find a way to collaborate. So mob programming really is about doing the same thing at the same time in the same space, And we're working at the same computer because that enables us to collaborate well. Mm -hmm. If we separate to do our separate parts of something that's bigger, let's say somebody's going to do the database, someone's going to do a front end, someone's writing some middleware, someone's dealing with some interactions with other objects, and they're all working separately and they're going to bring that work together, then we're not really collaborating. Mm -hmm. We're just – we're really working separately. And all of the issues that can happen from working separately – are going to be plaguing us. When we work together, many of those problems fade away. Uh, Joshua Karieski says pair programming and mob programming is the continuous integration of ideas. Mm -hmm. And that's a real good point. Because when we work separately, uh, our ideas are going in different directions. And when we come back together, we have to defend or explain at least why we made a certain decision. And it's very hard to remember Uh, even a day or two later, why we made that specific decision. Mm. When we're working together, we're all part of that decision. There's no need to explain it to each other. We've helped make those decisions together. Right. We just mentioned that uh, mob programming is really about a team sport, right? Um, How important is co-location for mob programming? Have you ever seen this being done in a distributed environment? Oh, yeah, most certainly. It's... um, there are, I know of several dozen teams around the world that are working in a distributed manner. Mm-hmm. Uh, the main thing to watch out for, I think, is time zone differences mm-hmm. because uh, you know the further you are in time zones, the harder it is to find a chunk of time mm-hmm. that you can work together. But most of the people that are doing this uh, are getting around that. Uh, I worked on a team for about six months where we were literally all scattered all over the world, and we, would, we found a three-hour block that we would – could solidly do every day and whoever could join during that time they would and some people would rearrange their daily schedule 
because uh, maybe it would be you yeah. know 9 p.m. for them. They would still join the team. They would just shift their schedule slightly, and uh, that worked pretty good. Wow, this is uh, it's interesting. So it's it's very similar to I've you worked with pairs and, and pair programming um, for for quite some time myself. So and we also carved out time slots per day. Uh, two hours, let's say between ten and twelve, or something like that. Whatever the time zones were, and we worked uh, very often co-located in, in pairs. So the same concept would also apply for for mob programming. So there's usually chunks of the day that are dedicated for mobs and some some exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I would say the only thing that you you need to handle or deal with uh, is having a pretty good technical setup. Where you know you can, if you're sharing the keyboard, you have a good way to do that. I won't go into detail of doing that, but some mm -hmm. teams uh, have found various ways of doing this. So I would say, essentially, uh, there are no barriers, but it may make it a slightly more difficult thing. It has its advantages. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the advantages of of working this way, uh, remotely, is that everybody sort of focuses in. Yeah. Uh, it helps us keep our focus. We see everybody's face if we're using a tool that allows us to see that. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, there's, it's, it, in some ways it has a, it's just a different way of working. Mm -hmm. uh, I like side by side. And if you set that up right, uh, side by side can work very well for collaboration, mm -hmm. but, uh, but face to face as you can get with, uh, you know, online tools is, is also a good thing. Yeah. They just, they, they're different. That's all. They're different. Both good. Mm -hmm. Well, I had um, myself, I got often questions from, from leaders about pair programming, for example, and they said, uh, you know, why would I pay two people to do the job of one? And uh, I answered usually, you know, well, you're, you're actually having uh, two people do the job of three, right? Uh, because it's so productive. Do you have, yes. do you have any insights uh, around mob programming in terms of the, the benefits, in terms of the like what kind of argument would somebody have who tries to bring in more programming to an organization and it sounds like everybody's working on one problem. Why not just having one person work on the problem? I think the I think I know the answer, but I just want to hear from, from you <laughs> if you had any if you had any data points on uh, on this and any insights to how you would position that. So um, without being cruel because yeah. I, I I'm not sure if I can say this without being cruel. Mm -hmm. A manager who cannot imagine why teamwork might be a good thing mm -hmm. um, may not be suited to being a manager. <laughs> That's right. uh, you know, uh, but again, you know, to please, I, I don't mean that in a cruel way, mm -hmm. but I, I'm certainly puzzled uh, by a manager who would think that uh, the idea that having five people working on five separate things is any better than a team of people working on one thing at a time. Mm -hmm. But why might a team of people be better? Uh, I can address slightly. I think this has to do with flow. Uh, by dividing the work up, we are automatically creating a situation. If, if, we, if we take a chunk of work and say, okay, somebody here needs to work on this part, someone needs to work on that part, we are naturally creating an environment where we're going to need to have a lot of coordination meetings. We're going to have to set up for communication and coordination, and we're often going to be diverging from each other. Whereas if we bring them all together, the need for those meetings goes away and we start accomplishing a type of flow that is very much like what you would consider a flow in a lean sense of the word. Mm -hmm. So there, there are at least two kinds of flow we can talk about. And one is psychological flow and the other is lean flow. 
And in psychological flow, we have the type of flow that an individual can have. Some people call that being in the zone. Uh, mm -hmm. And that way you're really focused on something, and in so doing, you feel very, very productive. Whether you're productive or not, I would question. Uh, it wouldn't be in all cases, but we certainly feel that we're more productive. There's another kind of flow that's similar to that is a team flow, where when we get people together, they start becoming and feeling very productive. Uh, but that has to do more with the psychological side of things. Now we'll go to the lean side of things. Mm -hmm. In lean manufacturing, we have this concept of flow. And flow can be thought of as work going from start to finish or beginning to end or start to completion, any of those kinds of ideas, directly with as little waste as possible. And waste usually manifests itself in the form of either waiting or queuing or excess inventory. Both of those are considered uh, highly wasteful. Mm -hmm. So if we can eliminate that waste in manufacturing, then we get flow and we are actually uh, – we're saving rather than uh, than than losing right. by getting that flow. Mm -hmm. Now, in manufacturing, that often would mean uh, rather than making 10,000 pieces and putting them in a box and 10,000 other pieces and putting them in a box and then bringing them to a location where they'll be assembled, we would be making those pieces as needed and assembling them as needed. Mm -hmm. Now, we can bring this back to product development, both in software or in any kind of product development, with the idea that if we can take a piece of work from beginning to end with as little queuing or waiting and inventory as possible, then we can accomplish some level of flow. If we can combine that with individual flow and team flow, if we can get all of those flows together, I think we get a huge benefit. Oh, yeah. So a manager who understands flow won't even need to ask the question. That they'll mm -hmm. understand that the flow is what we're ever after, not the optimization of individuals. Exactly. But when we're asking, when we're saying, well, we want five people working on five different things because then we're getting five things done, I would say, well, let's keep track of our cycle time. Mm -hmm. Are those five things getting done every few hours something's getting done? Or is it at the end of two weeks those five things got done? Mm -hmm. What we found with mob programming was that something that, that – previously would have been divided up and worked on separately would get done much quicker considering cycle time uh, when we all worked on it together. Right. Value generation, start. right? What's that? Value generation, right? When, yes. When, yeah, exactly, right. So that is that is the key aspect here. Um, so if this is true, that's I'm, that's my what I propose or what I hypothesize. Mm -hmm. If this is true, then uh, that would be a good answer for someone who thinks that dividing stuff up is beneficial. Mm -hmm. I think in a lot of cases, what we need to do is is essentially uh, take any work that we're doing and break it apart mm -hmm. into as small as parts as we can based on a few heuristics that I like to use, but I won't go into detail on that. But when we have that thing that we can work on that we usually consider a story that we can bring into our into our workflow – then that's something we can work on. And now as a team, we want to get that done directly mm -hmm. rather than waiting for questions to be answered by other team members. Uh, and that's why it's important to have all that knowledge together, mm -hmm. including our product expert. We want all the knowledge there in the room at the same time, if possible. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, this is this is uh, uh, fantastic, Hugh. Um, what, what you have to share and what kind of uh, wisdom you bring to the uh, to the mob program, and this is uh, fantastic. Um, there are... 
different kind of uh, styles of how these things actually culture within an organization. Um, very often when like when you started more programming, I don't know if that was a bottom-up movement within the organizations that some teams said, hey, why don't we work this way? Why don't we try that and experiment with this? And it seems to uh, stick. Um, at this point, there might be some, some leaders within an organization that might try to do this uh, top-down. And in that approach, have you ever seen any uh, organization where more programming was cultured top-down uh, as something that, that should be experimented with and developers actually hated it or you know, <laughs> even worse, uh, wanted to depart? Um. This yeah, this is a, is a difficult way, thing. Right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so this this is the first thing. I believe that any way that we work should be voluntary. And so if somebody mandates that we should work a specific way, that's sort of contrary to my philosophy of how we should organize our work. Uh, to put it really hopefully succinctly here, I believe that people doing the work can best figure out how to go about doing that work. And if we take that freedom away from them, we're probably going to lose any benefit of the thing we want to want mm -hmm. to uh, you know require that they do. Right. So mob programming, as well as any other way of working, it should be a choice of the people doing the work. Some people don't want to work as a team. It may eventually be more and more important to work as a team because right now I think we're starting to run out of single people problems. Yes. And we're we're going to. Uh, we're going to bring on to ourselves a very expensive way of managing work if we always think we need to divide it up rather than, well, why do we have companies? Companies exist so we can bring together all the people that we need to do some work. Mm -hmm. And so if if we say let's bring them all together but make sure they work separately, we're, we're kind of breaking our, our model of why do we uh, – hire people and bring them into a place to work or even working remotely. Right. And, and I think the amount of knowledge work is rather increasing than decreasing. And uh, with the increase, work is getting more complex, right? So it becomes more and more a team challenge. And uh, I think, yes. yeah, so what we're talking about here is probably going to be more emphasized in the future rather than de-emphasized. Yes, I, I think you're right. I think the, the reason that we started doing it uh, was purely uh, serendipitous, I suppose, but I think that our industry has been moving in this direction. We just didn't know it. Mm -hmm. we, ha we happened to be the first team to really get serious about it and start sharing not only that we were doing this on occasion, but that we were working this way every single day, all day long. Mm -hmm. When we first started, we didn't know we would do that. But when we first started, literally after the first day, uh, we haven't stopped. That was uh, six, seven years ago now. Uh, the very first week, the very first day we did it, we decided to continue the next day. Let's just keep working as a team. We were getting a lot done. We were learning a lot. Uh, we were seeing the quality was higher, and we were also seeing that we were having a good time. So you combine those things, and even any one of those would have been a benefit. Uh, but we got all of that. Mm -hmm. The thing is, is that we noticed that the first day, the first two hours of working this way, we all kind of noticed those things I just mentioned. And so we decided to continue the rest of the day that way. And at the end of the day, we decided, let's just go ahead and work this way tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And that literally, that was in sometime in the end or near the end of uh, 2011. And now they've grown from the from the one team we had. There's now seven or eight or nine teams at that particular company. But there's companies all over the world doing this. Yeah. But to answer your original question, the, the team was focused on learning to work together well. Mm -hmm. if, if you're If you were mandating anything 
it it should be something like we we got to get along, we got to work well together. Yeah. Um, but anything beyond that, how you go about doing it, uh, that probably that's going to be different for each team for each each situation. All right. I have one more question about uh, more programming uh, while I have you here on this on this thing, and then we might switch to another topic here for a few sure. minutes. Um, there's also a conference out there about mob programming, and maybe there's somebody listening to our conversation right now about mob programming as well. That sounds very interesting. Might pick up a book, might go to your website, mobprogramming.org, uh, maybe connecting with you on Twitter and, and so forth, and, and just getting more and more content around it. And maybe that person stumbles across that conference. Now, with mob programming in mind, um, how does anybody has to visualize what a mop programming conference would look like? Oh, well, we we started doing our mop programming conference. Uh, we just had our third one uh, uh, a few months ago in Boston. Uh, with the idea, our idea for a mop programming conference is I, I really wanted to gather together the people who had started working this way literally all over the world and have a place we can come together, gather together, to share what we were learning and to try some things out together to guide those of us who were less capable or less experienced, those who just want to try it uh, in real hands-on sessions. So the basic idea was just purely let's get together. It's a gathering. Mm -hmm. And we've continued that way with a, a little bit of addition of a few talks, but we generally would have a, a keynote and, and a, you know, a opening keynote and maybe a second day keynote. Uh, to talk about you know the the state of the art of where we're at with mob programming, but it's really it's just a hands-on gathering of people who are interested in working this way together. Mm -hmm. Is there are there any mobs within the mob programming conference? Is it? Yeah, so yeah. Uh, that's exactly what we do. We we uh, put together, uh, we we get a location that has enough separate rooms that we can have five or six or whatever mm -hmm. simultaneous uh, sessions going on. With different topics, like maybe we're going to we're going to try some lang new languages, mm -hmm. or another one we're going to do some TDD test-driven development, mm -hmm. or in another one we're going to talk about how do we bring up a team that's just starting, uh, how you know how do we guide them, things like that. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Yeah, uh, as I said, I, I just wanted to touch on another topic here with you because you're also very outspoken on about something very, might be, there might be a link between these two things, right? But uh, something different on paper, and that is the no estimates uh, movement. I think there is even on Twitter, there's a hashtag, uh, no estimates. And uh, how do you feel about estimates and, and the lack of it? Ah, huh. yeah, this is a huge topic. That is one. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll put it this way, first of all. I think that, uh, that uh, it's human nature, it's one of our built-in biases or feature of being a human is that we want control and certainty and almost to the degree that we will, um, we will make up reasons uh, for doing things a certain way so that we can feel we're in control. Uh, there are all sorts of things, and there's actually that, – that's a, I'm not a psychologist. Please, nobody mm -hmm. get me wrong here. But I've read a lot of books that, uh, and some studies. Uh, but normally the books refer to studies, and this is just human nature. We have things such as confirmation bias, which uh, is where once we believe something, we we tend to ignore any evidence that proved, could prove we're wrong mm -hmm. and only accept the evidence that helps reinforce that we're right. We also have a, 
one thing, I think it's called apophenia, where we'll take random data and make sense out of it because we need to have sense. We're not willing to to see this data without a reason behind it. Mm-hmm. And so uh, because that's part of our nature, we've built business systems or systems of managing software and other uh, software development and other business that may not actually be working like we believe that they're working. And one thing that I noticed through uh, a short period, actually, of uh, only three or four years, uh, I, once I first noticed this, I worked on a project way back or a company way back, uh, gosh, almost exactly 20 years ago, 1999, mm-hmm. um, where the estimates, they were doing estimates. They weren't serving them well. They were very focused on becoming better at, at doing the estimates. And they spent a lot of time in trying to figure out why the estimates weren't working well for them. And after a cycle or two of doing that, three cycles of doing that, uh, it became clear to me that they were doing a, what I would consider a common anti-pattern. We see a problem. We set out to solve it. But we can't solve it. But we then try again doing basically the same thing. Mm-hmm. If we think that if we need to get better at estimates – We'll solve this problem of our estimates not working very well for us. And getting better at estimates doesn't seem to help. It's telling us something. Mm-hmm. And what I think it's telling us is that um, we are dealing – or I should say it this way. Often what that pattern shows me is that we are trying to solve for a symptom and not solve for the problem. Mm-hmm. Now, we may never discover what the underlying problem is. But we at least can start investigating why do we think solving for this will solve what, what might be the real problem. And once I noticed that, I started taking notes about that. Everywhere I worked, I was doing contract work at that time. You work at a place for three months, another place for six months. You know, you go from place to place doing programming. Mm-hmm. And I noticed this over and over. Very same pattern. The estimates were not serving them well. And they thought the problem was we're not good at doing estimates. And so they worked on that. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of the beginning of me thinking, we need to talk about this. We need to – we can't just ignore this. We, we need to show it for what it is. Let's talk about what are the possibilities here. Is it that we're not good at estimates? After 30, 40 years of an industry not being good at estimates, I hope we can see that's maybe mm-hmm. not the problem. So I'm happy to answer any questions about this. I think that basically to me, no estimates – is the beginning point of being willing to to question the things we do without questioning. Mm-hmm. And that means question for ourselves, not question other people. Why are you doing that? But question for myself. Why, why are we using estimates here? What, what's, what's the reasoning behind it? Why do we think we need to get better at it? Um, are the kinds of decisions we're making based on these estimates uh, reasonable decisions to be trying to make? Like, should we do project A or project B? Mm-hmm. Why, why don't we just do both Project A and Project B? Well, there's always reasons yes. for for this, but let's start questioning it. Let's go down that path that will allow us to be reasoning about this. Now, I don't think that I have any answers, mm-hmm. and I don't offer answers. What I really offer is I've noticed this. If you've noticed it, let's talk. Mm-hmm. Let's start building our understanding of the problems we're seeing. Well, that was a big, long introduction. No, no, it's it's very interesting. So the, the no estimates, if I understand that right, how you look at that movement behind the hashtag, is more about this. There's no answers. There is there's no suggestion. There's just like 
opening um, a forum for conversation about the topic in general. Um, so that's one aspect of it. There's yeah. another aspect as well. Uh, I originally used the hashtag, and I'm more or less the originator, at least in this discussion, of that hashtag mm-hmm. in Twitter. There was one use of it a year or so earlier for a slightly different purpose. I didn't know it existed, but this is the reason I used this hashtag. I had written an article for Ron Jeffries. Ron Jeffries and I had been talking or conversing through Twitter mm-hmm. about working without estimates. And, he, and he, I said, yeah, I've worked without estimates. And he said, well, why don't you write a blog post about that experience? So I did, and I, I called it an intro to no estimates. And so I used the hashtag no estimates. What that meant was I had done what we might consider a software project uh, nowadays, I might call it something different, like maybe a software product or a software program, but uh, without using estimates for time, cost, or effort. Mm-hmm. So that's what, to me, no estimates was about, that we can do software development work without estimates of time, cost, or effort. Now, how we might do that is what I shared in that, but that's only one of a hundred or a million or mm-hmm. untold number of possible ways to work. Mm-hmm. The key to it is we no longer desire to know the future. We're looking at a different thing. We have our our desire becomes we want to we want to find a way to be as effective as we can and that's a lot more important than being able to predict the future. I don't think anyone can predict the future. And I don't know which is worse. Someone who believes they can predict the future or someone who pretends they can predict the future. <laughs> you know, uh, there's a trouble here. Yeah. If we really believe we can predict the future, please show me some kind of evidence. Mm-hmm. If, if you're pretending you pre- can predict the future so you can get contracts, knowing uh, that later on when the customer starts saying we need to change some stuff, you're going to be able to increase your price by renegotiating for that work that they're changing – that that may be bordering on something we need to we need to really question. Mm-hmm. Is that even unethical? Uh, I'm not claiming anyone is unethical, mm-hmm. but that's bordering on something we should at least be investigating. Well, definitely, definitely thought provoking, right? And uh, I mean, is this something you feel like is very specific to complex knowledge work, the no estimate uh, idea? Because I'm not sure if somebody's listening to this right now from their own personal environment, either in their project work or, you know, I'm just taking like a very basic example, like a home improvement project. I mean, everybody you know, out there who has engaged contractors or had projects done on their house, pretty much the first question you often have is, how long does it take? How much does it cost? Certainly. And those are very valid things to want to ask. But we need to ask them in those cases because we don't get to do a house improvement or building a deck or putting in a swimming pool Mm. or remodeling our kitchen. We can't do those things in the same way we get to do software. That's why. Software remains malleable forever if we work well with it. So let's just use an example. Let's say we decide that what we want to do is is remodel our kitchen. We want to get a cost for that, and we want to know how long it will take. However, if we're in the middle of it, we go, you know, this is starting to feel too crapped because all these appliances that we're getting are a little larger than what we have. Let's push the wall out another foot. Mm-hmm. Well, we don't really get to do that. Yeah. And so we, we kind of want to know what we're going to do before we start it. But if we could, at let's just say, change a configuration value, make the wall go out another foot, yeah. 
then that's how we would be doing kitchens. Mm-hmm. Their, their software is a different thing than, than a simple project. So let's make sure we're talking about the right domain. Mm-hmm. Software, so you maybe you're familiar with this idea of Kinefin. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with the concept? Yeah. So, so some of your listeners may not be, and you might want to uh, put a post to somebody's um, maybe a talk on explaining this. Mm-hmm. But we have these different quadrants, so they're really not quadrants, but different areas that we can consider. We have the very simple or obvious, and we have the what we consider complicated, and then we have an area that we can consider complex, and another of chaos. Mm-hmm. And I believe there's a fifth one that they call disorder. Uh, so let's think about where we're at in the work we're doing. In some of these domains, the simple one, we don't even need an estimate. You know, if you go to the store, you don't go, uh, right. could you estimate for me how much a gallon of milk will cost? <laughs> no? They're not going to make yeah. an estimate. They're yeah. going to say, well, there's the price. It's it's $4 or whatever. Mm-hmm. But in the, in the complicated, we may want to and can put together an estimate. It's because it's like building a deck. Mm-hmm. There's always going to be a few unknowns, like will this soil support a deck? And we may need to find that out by some kind of an investigation process. But as far as building the deck itself, we know how much wood it will take. We know pretty close how much hours it will take, how much transportation that will be, getting the materials to the site. Uh, How do we deal with the weather? All of these things are really straightforward. Mm -hmm. Uh, But when we move into the complex, and the complex can be defined in different ways, but uh, it's basically a realm where we don't get to know ahead of time how all these things will interplay. It might have very simple rules, but those very simple rules can end up with hundreds and thousands of different uh, potential outcomes. Uh There will often be, in the world of software development, unknowns. Mm -hmm. And you can't estimate an unknown. You know, you you can't say, it will take us about this long to figure out what we don't know. (laughs) You know, it's like, okay, uh, let's talk to Columbus about that problem. You know, like we don't know what we don't know. Yeah. And, and if, even if we have an a inkling of it, some of the things that we already know, we're wrong about. Mm-hmm. And so when we get in the middle of the work, and this is a famous uh, – I, I shouldn't put it that way. This is a saying I use all the time, and I made it up for myself. It's in the doing of the work that we discover the work that we must do. It's not until we start this sort of work that we start, start learning, learning the things we need mm-hmm. to learn. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, so this is very interesting, uh, Woody, and uh, this is how I wanted to end our conversation here about the no estimates. Uh, we didn't estimate how long this podcast would take, but uh, we, <laughs> we we come we come to a to an end at this point. Um, we can always continue at a later point in time. We should actually uh, see in a few years how uh, MOP and and the no estimates movement uh, progressed. If you are interested, um, join this um, uh, the hashtag uh, on Twitter, no estimates. Uh, there's also a lot of information about uh, Woody uh, on mobprogramming.org, and you can follow him. I put all the links and uh, also some of those things you just said uh, on the show page on Agile FM. Um, I want to thank you for all your great explanations and honor to have you on the show and, and, and listen to how mob programming started, how it evolved, where it is today, what your thoughts are. And also about the no estimates. Just want to thank you for your time and maybe some other time we continue. Can I thank you back? I, I really appreciate it, and, and it was an honor for me to be here. I, I honestly uh, uh, feel very honored to, to, that you welcome me into your podcast. Awesome. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to Agile FM, the radio for the Agile community. I'm your host, Joe Krebs. If you're interested in more programming and additional podcasts, please go to www.agile.fm. Talk to you soon. Thank you.